Father in heaven, if what we just sang isn't true, we're sunk. For we need and are completely at your mercy. In the richest and deepest and most thorough sense of that. So we thank you that your grace does cover that you have been gracious to us. That it's not what we have done or what we have merited nor deserved. But you have come to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one who has showered grace upon grace upon us. And so we're grateful for that. So even now we pray that you would give us more grace. Grace to our minds, to our ears. Grace to our hearts that your word may sing deep within us. Because Father... Even as we receive this grace, we have the audacity, therefore, being freed by your Son to ask that you would speak to us. So we pray that you would do that. That you would speak to us and your word would do what it does, and that is create that which is new and good. So speak to us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn to First Peter in chapter 2. 1 Peter in chapter 2, I want to read verses 21 through 25. 1 Peter in chapter 2, verse 21, please. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that... You might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. God will help us. I want to concentrate our attention on those last two verses this morning. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Those two verses there, those sentences right there, what I call big verses in the scripture because they contain so much. Obviously, all the scripture is God-breathed, all the scripture is helpful, all the scripture is profitable to us. But there are some passages that contain so much. In fact, these passages often seem very familiar to our ears. Oh yes, Jesus died for our sins. I know that. But it's huge. And what attracts me to these two particular verses, especially right here in First Peter, is that it seems, on first reading, as if this is a non-sequitur, as if it doesn't really follow what Peter's been talking about. So it's, it's rather striking, quite frankly, because he's been talking about following Jesus' example. He's been talking about following Jesus' example, and now he comes to a point where he tells me, to, tells me something about Jesus that I can't do. I can't die on the cross for your sins. If you're hoping that I will... You're out of luck. If I die on a cross, it won't work for either one of us. Only he can do that. And so he's been talking about following his example. Then all of a sudden he says, he breaks into this, this praise about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And how we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our soul. And, and, and so I have to ask, well, why? Well, why did he do that all of a sudden? Because he's been talking about following Christ's example. Notice, beginning with verse 18, this context of this particular passage. It's our second week on it, but 
Verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps." You see, the example of Jesus that we're to follow when suffering unjustly, right? And nobody suffered unjustly like Jesus suffered unjustly. I mean, Jesus had sinned against absolutely positively no one. He had never sinned against God. He had never sinned against another human being. He was utterly innocent. As I may have said last week, for us, even if we're suffering for something we haven't a direct tie to, it isn't that we're innocent. There's something we've done. I've often teased my children, even my adult children, that I had to ground them occasionally still, because I'm sure there's stuff I missed. Um, they're not innocent. But Jesus was utterly innocent. And so everything short of bowing down to worship Him was unjust suffering. Let alone being taken and lied against and beaten and put on a cross. He suffered unjustly, but, but when He did it, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Meaning, he wasn't sinning because of any lie of himself or anything he had done wrong. He was perfectly truth. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. Meaning, that he did not uh, uh, exchange evil for evil, but rather, he exchanged good for the evil that was given to him. He didn't speak back. He didn't retaliate. It says, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. He could have threatened. In fact, he could have threatened them with eternal damnation for what they were doing. But he didn't. And he could have made good on the promise. But he, but he didn't threaten that, even though he had a right to, even though he could have. But rather, the scripture said, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He knew his father, so he trusted his father because he knew his father would be faithful to all that he had promised. He knew that there was great purpose in what... He was doing because his father had sent him to die for sinners so that he might save his people from their sins. So he was trusting all of this, trusting himself to his father who is just, who is right, who is true, who always fulfills his promises. And so he said, I can go through this because this is my father who is sovereign. He's orchestrated all these events that I might be here in this particular situation. It's my calling so I can go forward to it because my Father is just and He will certainly fulfill all that He promised to me. He'll vindicate me. He'll raise me from the dead. And He'll be just in every way, shape or form. Jesus, you see, was living mindful of God. He was conscious of His Father. He knew that His Father was sovereign. He knew that this was His calling. He knew that His Father was just. He knew that his father would fulfill every promise that he had made. Thus, he could stand free before these people. And he didn't need to retaliate. He didn't need to be vengeful. He didn't need to revile back. He didn't need to threaten. In fact, he was free because he knew his father was handling it all. He was free to just ask for their forgiveness. And we're to follow that example. Even in the worst case scenario, suffering unjustly. Not only the physical suffering for suffering unjustly, but the emotional struggle from suffering unjustly. And he says, in that case, I want you to follow the example of Jesus. I want you to live mindful of God. I want you to understand that He is the one who is sovereign, and so He is the one who brings these circumstances 
It's not fate, it's not arbitrary, but God is sovereign over all that takes place. And here you are, and he says, stuck in this situation, if you will, suffering unjustly in their case as a servant, as a slave, unable to get away. I want you to live mindful of God, even in the context of that suffering, because God is sovereign. And not only that, living mindful of God means that you realize that God is just, and that He will reward you, because He sees, and it's for Him that you're actually working. And you can be mindful of Him, to know that He'll fulfill every promise that He's ever made, because to this you have been called, summoned placed by him. Now, it was fitting for Peter to use Jesus as an example. After all, we're Christians. Jesus is everything to us. Jesus is, is, is the example that we're certainly to follow. He's, he's, he's deity, and thus we can never be that, we'll never be divine, but he's perfect humanity. He's the perfect son of man. Two natures, God and man, one person, mysterious, you betcha, but still true. And so, Jesus, the Son of Man, this very one that would follow His example, this perfect man, would observe Him and follow in His steps. But then Peter comes and he starts talking about that which we can't do, that Jesus did. That which was unique about Him. He's the only one who can bear our sins in Himself on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's the only one who can do that. We can't do that. I can't do that for you. You can't do that for me. So my question is, why, Peter? Why do you bring that up here? Well, some have mentioned, and, and, and they may well be true, that this little sentence, maybe these, even these two verses, were part of an early Christian hymn. They wrote, er, they wrote hymns in those days, and, and they would sing them just like I'm going to be running all day. All the songs we sang this morning in my head. That's one of the reasons why we let you take the words home with you. And uh, you, can, you can do that. I, as some of you know, I run on a treadmill not as often as I should, but I sing hymns in my head. Uh, although Karen was running beside, walking beside me one day and said, shh, I must have been singing my love. But um, uh, I, I, that's how I keep my mind occupied. And, and so this little phrase, you know, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness might have been a, a nice little catchy part of a praise song. And Peter puts it there, but then you still ask, well, why this now? I mean, it's great for him to break into praise and break into song in the midst of his letter. That's wonderful, but, but, but why this one? There must be some connection. Because you see, what he brings into his whole discussion about following the example of Jesus in the midst of enduring unjust suffering without sin, without retaliating, without a vengeful spirit, without becoming bitter, what he brings into that whole mix is the work of Christ on the cross. Because you see, the, the work of Christ on the cross accomplished our healing, he says. By his wounds, you have been, past tense, you have been healed. Now, Peter isn't talking about physical healing here. Um, he was writing to people who were sick. Um, uh, he's not talking about physical healing here, although a day will come when because of the work of Christ we'll receive new bodies that will be imperishable and they'll never get sick and they'll never die. And Christ did, in fact, by his work, uh, guarantee that end result. But Peter's talking here about our souls. The redemption of our bodies will come, but he's talking here about our souls. He's talking, using the word healing as a metaphor for a healing of a relationship. Uh, if you're out of sorts with a friend 
and then the two of you reconcile, you could very easily say, and everyone would understand what you meant, you could very easily say, my relationship with John or Mary has been healed. And they would know that whatever was separating the two of you is no longer separating the two of you. Maybe between parent and child, you may say, my relationship with my parents have been healed. Maybe between husband and wife, my relationship with my wife or my husband has been healed. And we understand what that means. And that's Peter's point here. He's talking about a relationship with God. Because sin separates us from God. Sin creates hostility between us and God. Hostility from God's end, because because of our sin now he's wrathful towards us, because that's what we deserve. Hostility on our side to Him because sin breeds in us pride that says, I don't need God. So that's a problem. You have two who aren't together, two who have something against the other. God legitimately, us not, but still something against each other. When Jesus Himself, that's very important, Himself, the very Son of God, the very Creator of the universe, the Lord of glory. He didn't pass it on to another. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. And he did that, you see. He did that so he may take upon himself, I hope you know this, but if you don't, write it down and memorize it. He himself, when he did that, he took the penalty for our sin upon himself. The scriptures in the Old Testament, point to this continuously. For instance, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 21, as Moses is laying out curses that go to those who sin, he writes this, Deuteronomy 21, 22, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain on, all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man, or a man on a tree, is cursed by God. So you see, when Jesus went on a tree, everyone knew what that meant. He's cursed by God. And you say, but he was innocent. I thought you said he was innocent. And that's the point. It wasn't his sins for which he died. It was ours. book of Leviticus, you'll need to turn to this, but in Leviticus in chapter 16, as it lays out the Day of Atonement, there was a sin offering, but it used two male goats. Not just one, but two. One was used to show the means by which our sins would be forgiven. The other, the results of our sin having been forgiven. You might remember that the one goat was taken and it was slain and its blood taken into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and sprinkled on the seat of mercy, the seat of propitiation, to satisfy the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. And so God provides this substitute, this first male goat, and he dies on behalf of the people because of their sin. But then the priest comes out of all that and he takes the second goat. And he, and he takes that second goat and he leans against it as if he's becoming one with this goat. And as he leans against this goat, he confesses the sins of the people upon it as if their sins are now being transferred to this particular goat. 
So their sins were forgiven by the means of the first goat. But now this second goat, the sins of the people being confessed upon it, and then someone takes this goat after the sins have been laid upon it, and this goat leaves right in front of their very eyes. And it goes to a desert place, a place of desolation. And all the people would go, my sins are forgiven. I saw them leave. My sins are forgiven. I'm forgiven. They're gone, not to be remembered anymore by God. And when He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that's what took place. One sin offering. One substitute. He took in Himself all of that. And then the classic, the one I read for you for our call to worship, a passage I read all the time. Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 3, He, this is of the suffering servant who we know as Jesus, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But, this is where Peter gets it, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. You see, the problem was a lack of peace. The problem, the problem was hostility. And so when Peter says, by his wounds we were healed, he's talking about this sin problem that keeps us separated from God. And so what happens in the work of Christ and the cross of Christ is he brings peace between us and God. There's no longer any hostility. God is no longer upset with us because our sins have been dealt with. We're no longer upset with him because we realize he loves us. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. That is, we're now at peace with God. That is, we're no longer separated from him. That is, uh, the sin problem has been dealt with. So now we're joined together with him. All we like sheep have gone astray, Peter says. Um, like sheep, you were straying. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, all, of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That is, when he was reviled, he did not revile back. When he suffered, he, he didn't threaten. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Over Easter time we talked about that question, who killed Jesus? Who put him to death? It was a popular question back then. And of course you could say, well, it was the Romans and the Jews together conspiring. They certainly had something to do with it because there they were at the moment they made those decisions. And you could say, yes, but, but really it was our sin that put him to death because he died for our sin. Yet the truth of the matter is, it was God. It was the very plan of God to put him to death. It was his will. One version says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Why? Because in crushing him, he was able to save. In crushing Him, He was able to show His great glory and the love that He has for us and the wonderful grace that is beyond explanation. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall appear, so prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's us, by the way. The many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I'll divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is for us. He intercedes for us. He's the go-between for us. He's the one who stands in heaven for us. He's the one that enables us to be accepted by God. Thus we are healed. The relationship between us and God healed by his wounds, the very punishment that he took brings healing to us because he takes the penalty for our sin. But Peter even goes beyond that. For he said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, here's the purpose, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Not only was the penalty of sin taken on the cross by Jesus, but the power of sin was dealt with in our lives as well. The dominion of sin. He says, now you can die to sin and live to righteousness. It isn't just that your sins are forgiven. That's good. That's necessary. But he says, there's something else as well. Now you can live to righteousness because of him. Paul speaks to that in Romans in chapter 6, for instance. Paul's just been through this whole deal about we're saved by grace through faith. And so some would say, cool, that's sin. And Paul would say, ah, you're not getting it. You don't understand. When grace comes and you receive that which Christ has done on the cross, forgiveness of sins, that's not it. There's a bigger package. It comes with living to righteousness as well. So Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's a paraphrase. That's dumb. Next line. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus, Paul's using baptism as a, as a metaphor here for being joined together with Christ. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I've said before, I don't know the intent of that old hymn, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? I don't know what the answer they're expecting, but the right answer is yes. We were joined together with Christ, that when He died, we died. Thus, when He rose, we rose to newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self, that is the sinful self before conversion, our old self is crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Purpose again, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Not only was the penalty of sin dealt with, but its dominating power as well to free us. That's why the Bible often uses the word redeemed when it talks about us. Because to redeem means to purchase, to pay, to pay the ransom, if you will, to free a slave. And we were once enslaved to sin. Christ did that. Christ paid so that we could be freed. Now think about that in the context of your own life. Daily, the decisions you make, the things you do, the way that we think. Think about all of that. 
my sins have been forgiven and I've been free to walk in this newness of life. So why then does Peter bring this up? Why does he bring this up right after we're commanded to follow the example of Jesus? I think this first. Because he wants us to be certain that this is God's intention for us, that we're able to follow the example of Jesus. Even in the worst case scenario when we're suffering unjustly. So this was God's intent for you. For instance, in verse 21, back First Peter in verse 21 he says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He's saying all this took place so that you may follow in his steps. This wasn't arbitrary, this wasn't random, this isn't a second thought for God, but, but he had this purpose that you would follow in his steps. And then he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin. That we might die to sin. Here's the purpose for which he did it. That we might die to sin. That we might put it aside and live to righteousness. That was the intention of God. Because you see, the work of Christ is not only our example, but it's our enabling power. It's the thing that frees us. If it hadn't been for the work of Christ, the commands of God to us would simply fall on hostile ears. But because of the work of Christ, we're now freed to obey. We're actually free to bless those who curse us because of the work of Christ. Now that, that's a foolish commandment to give someone who hasn't been freed by the work of Christ. But we're actually free to bless those who curse us. The old language in the King James for one passage was we're to pray for those who despitefully use us. That's how I memorized it as a kid. Who despitefully use us. Not just use us but despitefully use us, to do it in such a way to rub our noses in it, to, to do it in such a way as to show them better than we. To put us down. You can still pray for them and pray that God would forgive them. That's amazing. On what basis? On the basis that you've been freed from vengeance. You've been freed from personal pride. You've been freed from all of that, you see. Because, you see, as Peter walks through this book, he says that we're to hope only in the grace that's to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all the way back in chapter 1. He commands us to hope only in this grace that's to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. He's saying the only thing I want you to hope, hope in is that you would be conformed to Christ himself. That nothing else will satisfy. Well, who can take that kind of a command? Who can take that kind of a command? Only someone for whom power of sin has been broken. Because the power of sin says to us, no, we ought to go our own way. But this says, no, the only thing that can satisfy is that which reflects Jesus. We're commanded to be holy. To whom can that command be received only to those who's, for whom the power of sin has been broken? That they can actually walk in the steps of Jesus. We're commanded to fear God and Him alone. Or for whom can that command make sense at all, let alone be received only for one? For whom the power of sin has been broken and sin's deceit that says, you should fear me, you should revere me, you should follow me, has been broken. Only one who sees the worthiness of God and that he and he alone should be followed. We're commanded to love each other as Jesus has loved us. Well, for whom can that command really be received except for one for whom the power of sin has been broken and 
our selfishness and self-centeredness has died on that cross. We're commanded to live as strangers and aliens in this place. That is to live following after God and all of His commandments and His culture and speak as He would speak. Well, that only comes to those who are able to do that and only those who are able to do that are those for whom the power of sin has been broken. We're called and commanded to live to declare the excellencies of God. The only one who can do that is the one for whom sin has been broken so that he knows the excellencies of God and rejoices in them. We're called to be subject to human institutions even in the midst of the corruption of those human institutions and to be respectful. Who can do that? Only those for whom the power of sin has been broken. We're commanded to be submissive to even harsh masters for the sake of Christ who can do that. Only those from the power of sin has been forgiven and you see the righteousness of Christ and the holiness of God and His justice and that He can do it. That's the person who can do that. Who can follow in Jesus' steps. And finally this, I think Peter raises this particular point at this particular moment because he wants us to have confidence. He wants to encourage us. You really can do this. Don't be afraid. Don't doubt. When the commands come, don't shun them. Don't turn away from this. Oh, it's too great a burden to put on me. No, no, no. Look at them as one for whose sins have been taken by Christ and the power of sin has been broken. Take them there. Don't despair. Because now you see, he says, the proof that all of this is true is that once you were straying, but now you've come back. Now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You know how a sheep comes back to the shepherd? A sheep comes back to the shepherd by getting really, 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 really lost. And then one day finding an arm going around over its back and around its belly and picking it up. And then the sheep turns its head and looks at the shepherd and says, I'm back. Or maybe, I'm back. <laughs> that's how a sheep returns. And so if you've returned, it means the shepherd whose job it is to seek and to save that which is lost has sought and saved you. And there was a point in time when you felt an arm around your back and around your belly and you turned around and you looked and you said, I'm forgiven. And now I'll walk with you. And you say, well, that doesn't always match up with my experience. I appreciate all this word about being freed from the power of sin, but I still sin, and it's still devastating at times to me. And I understand that. I'm just like you. So why is it? Why the struggle? Again, I think this. I think it's rather like being a student. You know, as you get through high school, and you learn some study skills, and... You're all ready for college and you have all the study skills down. You know how to do this. You set aside a quiet time. You have all your pencils sharpened. You have your computer ready. You have all your books out, your notebooks, your syllabus, your assignments. All of that ready to go just like you did in high school and you find it's not working so well. You know why? Because you just bumped up. You're no longer taking the high school course. You're taking a college course. And then the second year it's 201, not 101. And you go, uh, 
But you keep going back to these basic things. You keep going back to these basic things and you apply them at each step up. Because still you need a quiet time. Still you need your pencil sharpened. Still you need your syllabus up. Still you need your books ready. Still you need your notebooks there. But now you're applying them in a more difficult situation than ever before. And at first you start to suck air and you go, I can't do this. And you may even fail. You may even put it off. And, and, but you keep going back and you keep going back and you still continue to apply that which you know is true. And sooner or later those methods, those skills bump up. The same is true for an athlete. You, you learn certain skills, you learn certain uh, ways of playing, certain mechanics. And they work really well at one level, but then you go to the next level and you find, I'm hitting that guy, he ain't falling down. Wow, you've just bumped up. Now you need to take those mechanics and grow in them and apply them now in the new situation. And you see, God continues to take us places. And He keeps taking us places and He keeps saying, you trust me. Do you really believe that when Jesus Himself took your sins in His body on that tree, that it was for the purpose of the forgiveness of your sins, that you might die to sin and live to righteousness? You're finding righteousness hard in this context, aren't you? That's because I've never called you to live righteously and suffer unjustly before. It's a little more difficult than living righteous in a nice situation. And now you're being called to endure cancer and live righteously. You're being called to live without a job and live righteously. You're called to live with a roommate you don't particularly care for, but live righteously. You're being called to be in a marriage where it's difficult and live righteously. It's all the same truth. And then the enemy comes and lies to you and puts those lies in your head and says, uh, isn't sin more fun? Wasn't it more enjoyable back in the day? Wasn't it better when you didn't have this person to worry about? Wasn't it better when you didn't have this thing to worry about? Wasn't it better when... And the Lord's saying, do you really believe that when He Himself bore your sins in His body on the tree, that it was for the purpose that you might die to sin and live to righteousness? I begin to doubt and we begin to struggle. The burden comes. And thus I think Peter gives us this passage as a key to enable us to unlock the door to any doubting place we may be in thinking, no, the call of God is too high. He says, no, just remember this. Keep this with you at all times. The way John Bunyan, the great author of The Pilgrim's Progress, put it, he said that this is a great key to unlock the door in Doubting Castle. If you know that little allegory, you might remember the time when Pilgrim, I'm sorry, when Christian, was walking along the King's Highway with his friend Hopeful. You remember that Christian had left the City of Destruction and he was on his way to the Celestial City and he was to get there by walking and staying along the King's Highway. Well, he and Hopeful, his friend, got off the King's Highway one particular day and went into a place called Bypath Meadow. Now, you get the feeling that's not the right place to be. When you're walking on the King's Highway, you should never take anything called Bypass. But there they found themselves, and in finding themselves there, they met a great giant whose name was Giant Despair. And he captured them, and he took them to his home called Doubting Castle. And he threw them in a cell, and he beat them within an inch of their life because he had gone into a great rage. And he says, you'll never get out of here. There's no way you can get out of this place alive. In fact, you'd be better off taking your own life because that would be better for you than staying here any length of time at all. 
so he left. And Christian got very discouraged. He thought, there's no way I'll ever get back. There's no way I'll ever get back to the King's Highway. I'll never make it to the Celestial City. But his friend, hopeful, being hopeful, said, be patient. Let's endure. Maybe there's a way out. Giant despair came back that evening. And he was very disappointed that his guests were still alive. And he threatened them even more. He says, it's going to get worse for you as the days go on. So he went and he had a conversation with his wife, giant despair. And she said, you know, I think you ought to take them to visit in the castle yard, the place called Skulls and Bones. For that was a place where those who had despaired of life ended their lives. And so he took them there. And he said, this will be true of you in ten days. And he beat them again and he threw them back in the cell and Christian f fainted dead away. And when he awoke, he said, I don't know. I think we'd be better off dead than living in this place. And then he and Christian began to pray because the stroke of midnight on Saturday night happened and they began to prepare themselves for the next day. And as they prayed through the night, the morning came. And as the morning came, Christian uh, realized this coming to his senses, he says, What a fool! What a fool am I! Thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, That good news, brother! Pluck it out of thy bosom dry. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back and the door flew open with ease and Christian and Hopeful both came out. And then he went to the courtyard that leads into the castle yard and with his key opened that door also. And after he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too. But that lock went very hard, yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. But the gate, as it opened, made such a creaking that it waked giant despair who hastily, rising to pursue his prisoners, felt his limbs to fail, for his fits took him again, so that he could by no means go after them. And then they went on, and came to the king's highway again, and were safe, because they were out of his jurisdiction. When we learn to live in the truth, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, we will be living out of the jurisdiction of doubt. Out of the jurisdiction of doubt that we can actually follow Christ. Because you see, when we learn to live there, and we learn to live from that one sentence, then we realize the power of has been broken. I can walk with Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Pray for me and for all of us that we can learn to live, to live in the truth, to know that by the wounds that Christ suffered, we have been, not we will be, we have been healed. Our relationship with you is restored. It's well. It's sound. And Father, that means that as you command me, because of the work that Christ has done in the Spirit who is within us, that we can do it, not to our own strength and merit, but to your glory alone. 
But Father, as we're doing it, we realize it's your strength. I pray this sentence can be for us a key to unlock any doubt. And that we can live out of the jurisdiction of the castle of doubt and we can walk with Christ in a way that brings you glory and bears with the great truth that he did bear our sins in his body upon the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that <clears throat> elders are available to pray uh, in the office area, so please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction is, <clears throat> I believe in Jesus. Amen. Now when you say, I believe in Jesus, what you're saying is, that I believe He really did bear and be personal about it. My sins in His body on the tree. And here's the purpose He did that. I may die to sin and live to righteousness. I was once straying, but now I've returned to the shepherd and overseer of my soul. And when you say Amen, you're just saying, Yes, sirree. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to Him, who was able to keep you falling, present you blameless before His glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I believe in Jesus. Amen.